Welcome to The Metabolic Link, a podcast that explores the common thread of metabolism in health and disease. This is where science meets society. Metabolic Health Summit is the world's premier scientific and medical conference on metabolic health and therapies, featuring world-renowned expert speakers, cutting-edge science, an innovative expo, and incredible networking opportunities. MHS is altogether an unforgettable experience for anyone interested in metabolic health. I think Metabolic Health Summit is amazing. It does such a phenomenal job of bringing world-renowned experts in different illnesses and metabolism, real-world experiences, clinicians, patients, paired with vendors who are trying to make this easier for people. You know, I think for everybody who comes, including myself, learns something. Join us January 25th to 28th, 2024 in Clearwater Beach, Florida, or attend virtually. CMEs are available. Go to metabolichealthsummit.com and use the code LINK to save 10% on your registration. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Metabolic Link. And we uh, have an amazing uh, two guests here today that are speakers at the Metabolic Health uh, Summit, which is occurring just in a few weeks. Uh, if you have not registered yet, please do so as soon as possible. We'd love to see you in person. And uh, if you can't make it in person, there's also a virtual component. So today we have two amazing uh, guests on the show. Dave Feldman, he is a senior software engineer and entrepreneur who has really become obsessed with understanding lipidology in the context of his uh, cholesterol, which climbs significantly on a low carb diet, uh, which he's had enjoyed great success on a low carb diet and all the benefits that come with it, but the elevated LDL, which many people out there listening may have experienced. He has since performed a series of experiments uh, around this phenomenon uh, and published several papers on the mechanisms of the phenotype of uh, the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. And he's working with UCLA through a newly formed public charity, the Citizen Science Foundation. So I encourage people to go to that foundation if they're interested in learning more about uh, the lipid energy model, lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, and how to contribute to that research. And we have Dr. Nick Norwitz. He's a PhD. He's completed his undergraduate at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire, graduated there as a valedictorian. He majored in cell biology and biochemistry at Dartmouth. Uh, thereafter, he completed his PhD at the University of Oxford, Department of Physiology, Anatomy, and Genetics. And his thesis was focused on ketone metabolism and neurodegenerative diseases. Specifically, he did a PhD project looking at the effects of the ketone ester. So he's currently a medical student at Harvard Medical School. Uh, he's third year MS3 with plans to pursue uh, residency in internal medicine or pediatrics and a career as a physician scientist. His current research interests are focused uh, on the metabolic effects of dietary macronutrient manipulation and as it relates to carbohydrate and insulin model lipid energy model and the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. So Nick is an N of one experiment uh, in and of itself, and he is very prolific on, uh, on Twitter and also has an amazing YouTube page, which I encourage everybody to check out. Uh, so without further ado, uh, we have Dave Feldman and Dr. Nick Norwitz. Great. So let's begin, guys. Thank you, Nick, uh, Dr. Norwitz, for joining us. And of course, Dave Feldman, longtime uh, favorite uh, speaker on this topic of lean mass hyperresponder, spearheading research in this direction. Uh, no doubt I get more questions about this than any other topic in the low-carb ketogenic space. So I am very excited to hear uh, of the emerging research you guys are doing, and I have a list of questions for you. So maybe just give a brief introduction of who you are and what you do. Uh, I guess I'll kick it off. I'm uh, Dave Feldman, I am a software engineer and platform architect and kind of got my whole life and career and everything derailed, if you will, after getting a very high cholesterol test after going on a ketogenic diet. That got me obsessed with understanding lipidology as best as I could, doing a number of self-experiments, 
and then eventually trying to work my way uh, into the field and uh, eventually connecting uh, with Nick Norwitz and a number of other people that helped us to formalize this research a bit more. Can you give a brief time frame on that? Because I'm trying to chronologically put this into place. Of yeah, yeah. Um, quite literally, I got that cholesterol test in November 27th of 2015. So okay, yeah. It's so, so. Uh, yeah. It's it's been it's been quite a journey. And for what it's worth, at each step, I kept thinking, oh, I'm pretty much done. I think I've got enough that I can hand off to somebody who will take it from here. And that's that's pretty much you know my timeline is a constant attempt to hand things off, but then ultimately getting further and further along. Mm -hmm. I guess my introduction, I'll run with the timeline thing, thinking about what I was doing in yeah. 2015. <laughs> um, I had just graduated high school. So as a freshman in college or maybe an early sophomore, oh, spending geez. a lot of time probably at, yeah. uh, I went to Dartmouth college. The dining hall there was fantastic and we would probably be slamming lots of ice cream and uh, cookies. So I was not, keto at that point in time. But at the end of college, I developed um, pretty bad IBD. And then at the beginning of grad school, when I finished up at Dartmouth, I was studying, um, majored in cell biology and biochem. And then I went over to Oxford to do my PhD. And around that time, I was having a really hard time with ulcerative colitis. So my introduction to low carb was I was trying a bunch of different um, diets just to see if any would help with my IBD. Eventually, I had uh, tried a ketogenic diet and it was very effective for me. So that kind of catapulted me into this space, which I was exploring while I was doing my PhD at Oxford, um, coincidentally, actually in ketogenics. It was in the lab yeah. of Kieran Clark, who um, developed the, the ketone ester um, back in 2003. So I was studying neurodegenerative diseases. And when I um, finished up at Oxford, I came over um, back to uh, New England from Old England. Um, to do my medical degree at Harvard. So right now I'm a third year at Harvard Medical School. And I met Dave, it must have been 2020 or 2021. I it sounds it sounds really proximal. It feels like it's been a lifetime as this Dave can probably. Yeah, like I thought brother. it was like 2019 or 18 or okay, but so much has yeah. happened. 2019 was when I tried a keto diet. So that it was it was mm -hmm. June 1st, 2019. I remember it very vividly. Um, so that was like four and a half years ago or so, um, maybe a little bit more. And um, I had the same reaction Dave had, even a little bit more extreme in terms of my, my cholesterol response. I had totally normal LDL my whole life. Even on a pretty standard diet, my LDL was like 90, you know, eat whatever I want more or less, eat a balanced diet, et cetera. But when I went low carb and when I did it, I'll qualify because of what I perceived as healthy. My low carb was like basically free of dairy and red meat. It was very Mediterranean-esque, put quotes there because obviously that's a, a vague term, but lots of unsaturated fats, fish, and my LDL ended up jumping to the 300s and eventually the 500s with that approach. So to me, that was very shocking. And How fast? Because I have a little bit to add to this you know, story from my how fast my LDL went up. But, but how fast did your LDL go up when you initiated? Well, at that point in time, I wasn't really following it because I didn't expect that to be a possible reaction. So I don't remember when my next lipid test was after, getting, after going keto, but it, it was probably my first test was probably a couple months later. My first um, retest was in the 300s, and then it, I've had a peak at 545. And when I had that 540, that's the LDL and yeah. my saturated fat, my unsaturated saturated fat intake ratio then was like 5.67 to one. It was an 85% of fat was unsaturated, only 15 saturated and totally free of like phytosterols. So I'm not hyper absorbing the dietary um, sterols. So anyway, I was very curious about it. Started doing my own research. One thing led to another and my world collided with Dave's, which I can't tell you how grateful I am for that occurrence. Obviously, I wouldn't wish IBD on myself or anybody else, but the degree to which it's put my life in a new direction, but one with a lot of interest and purpose and a lot of curiosity, particularly around this question of lean mass hyperresponders, I just get up every day and I'm so energized to um, you know study about it, engage with people, learn more. It feels like a niche that needs to be explored. So it's been really cool um, meeting so many interesting people like yourself, like Dave from other walks of life and just being 
tied together by this this question about well what's going on here in some lean people who have these massive spikes in cholesterol when they go low carb and trying to unravel that mystery has been a really exciting part of my last two years and actually kind of kept me afloat during what I hope is the hardest part of medical school because the last year wasn't all that gentle but this has been a shining light mm -hmm. in the darkness to be dramatic well I admire and respect you guys both for what you're doing, what you're spearheading and your ability to put yourselves out there. And I'm sure you're facing a lot of uh, pushback, maybe even criticism, like on certain topics that you are advancing. And uh, I'd like to sort of get into some of those topics in particular, uh, you know, and, and you guys, I want you to kind of walk me through some of the research that you're doing, but uh, something that consistently comes back to me as a question of saturated fat does saturated fat drive ldl in uh in particular the lean mass hyperresponder, but in the general population too what, what your thoughts on that do you want to start david should i yeah i mean it's it's kind of funny i almost uh i almost don't want to take the thunder away from nick because he actually put some decent work into an article that you can now find at cholesterolcode.com authored by him, where he really specifically attacks the topic of saturated fat and whether or not it's what's driving uh, increased LDL. Of course- in him, yeah. Well, not, no, no, not just in him, yeah. Oh, okay, there's, okay, great, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so I, I realized that this is this is a common expectation and to be to really emphasize, we're not suggesting we don't think there isn't any impact of saturated fat that can have uh, that can impact uh, LDL levels. It's it, we're talking about about a basket of different influences, and when we're talking about the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, specifically high LDL, high HDL, low triglycerides, that phenotype, that that tends to have the highest level of LDL. And when you're seeing that level of LDL, how much is it impacted by saturated fat? Well, Nick just got done talking about his diet that not only did his LDL go up into the 500s, but on top of that, he was actually, for a ketogenic diet, he actually had a low proportion of saturated fat compared to many others. Certainly, I eat a lot more saturated fat than he does. Uh, go ahead, Nick, you were gonna say. I think, uh, just to emphasize that this isn't just a, I might be an outlier of sorts in many ways, but to kind of go through some of the arguments why saturated fat really isn't a good explanation, I think, the first and most obvious is just an order of magnitude question. Can some saturated fat, you know, affect cholesterol and people on a mixed diet? Yeah, maybe a little bit. You get a little bit of LDL receptor downregulation and you get a little bit of bump. But the order of magnitude we're talking about is bumps of, you know, dozens to hundreds of milligrams per deciliter. Nowhere in the literature is there any suggestion that saturated fat can have that kind of impact in size alone. And then you have to, you know, tack on to that. Well, um, can it explain the other phenomena we see going on here? So with lean mass hyperresponders, it's a lipid triad. It's not just the LDL. So you see the HDL going up as well. Is the saturated fat really bumping people's HDLs to 90, 100, 110? I've sat as high as 124, as well as other people, plus the low triglycerides. So can you actually explain that lipid triad with the saturated fat? And then, like, layer onto that, Another thing, the inverse association between BMI and LDL change, whereby leaner people have larger increases in LDL, and this is a dose-response effect. So, you know, if you look at, say, the randomized human control trials, and you look at those on lean people and those on people who are overweight or with obesity, you'll see the changes in the lean people, but not in the people who are overweight or with obesity. So is it because lean people are eating more saturated fat selectively and in a dose-dependent manner? And then you add on to that the fact that people can go on low saturated fat, low carb diets and be lean mass hyperresponders. So you can see that there are a lot of things here that just don't make saturated fat a very elegant explanation. It's kind of a little bit hand wavy, in my opinion, and doesn't really capture the picture. And it's um, worth also that, it's worth I'll, also adding. A, oh, go ahead. The last thing I was going to say would be there's easy ways to test this. And one would be to do an intervention that would be predicted by our model to reverse the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, but without reducing the saturated fat intake, maybe even increasing it at the same time, then what happens?
because that, you know, alone should put the nail in the coffin. I will also add one more thing in that all of this is going to be a very moot point soon. I can't tell you why. I can tell you there is a paper in the works, not the N equals one we'll talk about, but a very rigorous paper that's going to be published in a top journal that I think will put the nail in the coffin of the saturated fat question. You'll know what I mean when it drops. Can Dave you describe, knows. okay, yeah, I'm totally looking forward to that. Can you describe for our listeners and just to refresh my memory, the cutoff point for the triad for the LDL, HDL, and triglycerides for lean mass hyperresponder? I'm not sure we we mentioned that. Yeah, there sorry. Maybe some new listeners here. Yeah. It was, and for what it's worth, Dom, the, the story behind it's a bit um, almost comical in retrospect because it was it was before I had connected with Nick is before I was really even working with uh, researchers. It was in 2017 and it really was just pattern recognition, but it also kind of fit into the early uh, rumblings that I had on the energy model. The, the cut points are an LDL cholesterol of 200 or higher, an mm -hmm. HDL cholesterol of 80 or higher and triglycerides of 70 or lower. And it's worth emphasizing all three of the things I just mentioned are already rare, like individually. They're already rare. Yeah. Uh, but the the thing that I uh, was going to say from earlier that that kind of ties in nicely to this is we didn't really see this before, even in the days of Atkins. And I would argue that the reason there's a historical context, which is that people like the three of us on this call didn't really have a reason to decide to cut out carbs, especially if we were interested in uh, athletic endeavors, right? If we were um, pursuing fitness, uh, the interest was definitely the opposite, that you need to carb load, that you need to top off your glycogen stores and so forth. And it really, it really wasn't until quite literally, uh, I want to say like the last eight, 10 years, truly, that there actually was more of an interest, not just in going low carb ish to where you might be like, say at hundred grams of carbs, but for many of us going actually ketogenic where it might actually get down towards like say 20 or 30 grams of carbs. At that point, then there was this new phenomenon if you were metabolically healthy that started to emerge and that's when the pattern was much more recognizable. So I would see that not only people would have high LDL, but also they would tend to, they tend to be leaner. They would not be the people who would typically go to see Dr. Atkins back in the day or who were, yeah. who themselves were deciding what the heck, I might as well just try this other diet where you drop carbs, we have lots of saturated fat because I'm already in a metabolic crisis to begin with. These were folks who were like, hey, I wanna see what happens with my athletic performance if I go on this. And that's why some of the earliest, you know, not quite lean mass hyperresponders, but certainly hyperresponders that we know of were with the work of Volk and Finney because they were interested in the athletic components uh, with the ketogenic diet. So it's, that's why I think it's it's kind of a, it's a good opportunity, I guess you could say historically that as this emerged at the same time, we were, we had social media to be able to observe this a bit more often. Yeah. And, and it's not really a feature of the ketogenic diet literature with kids and stuff that are on a very high fat, very low carb ketogenic diet. It's not uh, overtly noticeable, at least. I mean, there's some, there's some clues in the literature, but it's just not a feature of kids, pediatric population, or even adults that are not necessarily obese or using it from the epilepsy literature. And that's kind of like our best literature. We're going to put, you know, there's RCTs on ketogenic diets for epilepsy. And that's probably our best literature on ketogenic diet metabolic effects. And it has not been seen. So it's, I thought I was kind of an outlier when I started seeing this and I started getting more and more and more emails. And then, you know, you start doing this research. So it's kind of weird that it just didn't surface from the epilepsy literature, but I think it lends to that idea of a lean mass hyperresponder athletic phenotype. Uh, to, just to add real quick on the epilepsy, because we ourselves for the documentary, we're reaching out to, um, uh, to doctors of epileptic patients specifically. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges is, and I, I say this with kindness, um, including children today, they tend to not necessarily be as lean athletic, especially if they've got medical challenges they're working through. Um, but we have interviewed um, some that are going to be coming on the documentary. I can't steal the thunder from that just yet. But sure enough, that were much more lean, much more athletic, and they do tend to exhibit the phenotype depending on what their uh, medical 
their medicine regimen is because there's that component mm -hmm. too. The other issue is that epileptic doctors, um, you know, such as ones that are connected with the Charlie Foundation, they're understandably concerned about discussing this out loud because oftentimes, you know, epilepsy is the first thing that everyone wants to care about dealing with. And, you know, cholesterol comes up, but that's okay. There's this, you know, there's a suite of different drugs for cholesterol lowering medication. Um, but that's, um, this is all the more reason why we want to get this data out, especially with regard to risk is they should have those answers for those people who are especially are using it for medical efficacy. Uh, yeah. We want to be able to tell them, you know, this is what we do have for right now on risk with these individuals. And they may have been taken off the diet because of that. And that doesn't show up in the literature, which I'm aware of numerous cases for that just through email. But yeah, the late John Freeman, Eric Kossoff's mentor, passed away in 2012, I think. You know, th there was a publication with the elevated triglycerides and elevated cholesterol mildly, but... Uh, my thoughts are that the elevated triglycerides are a feature of someone really not adapting well to a ketogenic diet and maybe taking in surplus calories. But um, but that was a paper that was often referenced for the atherogenic risk of ketogenic diets. And, but I think kids, yeah, were definitely removed because of this reason. For sure, there could be like many reasons that LDL could go up. Um, yeah. So say somebody has high triglycerides, it could be a genetic factor. It could be, you know, chronic excess intake. Um, I think that's the, the power of identifying the triad as being something that all three of these things coexisting is very improbable unless they're part of a particular pattern. It's like rolling a hundred sided dice three times and getting the same number every single time. It's just not very probable. And you do have to kind of weigh specificity against sensitivity, like any medical tests. The thing we get often is, is it just made up? Or a similar question, am I a lean mass hyperresponder? Here are my numbers. To that, mm -hmm. I'd say, well, the former, yes, it's made up. Like everything else in medicine, like syndrome X became metabolic syndrome, et cetera, et cetera. You identify a pattern, a syndrome, a set of characteristics, a phenotype, and you name it. And then you use that to study it. But as you well know, for classifying things and studying them, we usually do have to come up with cut points. And the physiology does not care about the cut points that medicine comes up with. We just create them for classification. But, you know, if somebody's looking at their lipid panel and asking, am I a lean mass hyperresponder? Well, the criteria are clear in terms of the cut points. But if your LDL is 199, and that's the only reason you're not meeting it, it's like, well, that's just, you know, it doesn't really have that much bearing on your physiology. It's like asking the question, do I have diabetes if your A1C is 6.4 instead of 6.5? The answer is, well, you don't quite hit the threshold, but does it really matter? Again, arbitrary cut points, the physiology doesn't care about them, but we do need them for some degree of classification. And I think maybe just by coincidence, the 280, 70 cut points do a really good job of, you know, picking out the, the true positives while not getting too many false, um, false positives. So balancing the sensitivity yeah. and the specificity really well. Um, I don't know how Dave did it. He might've had like a, you know, a time machine or something, but. No, it's, that's it's, for now. The the person missing from this call, but is part of our trio, is um, uh, Adrian Sotomoda. And one of our favorite moments ever for all three of us was when he got uh, a hold of data. I gotten a lot of survey data from people who were turning in their numbers, just lipids in general. And he did a hypothesis naive analysis. So it's like machine learning, where basically it's telling us what it's finding. And it was finding a triad very close to the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. So yeah, I, I, uh, I'm I excited because I feel like so much of the advancement that we've had in the research, ironically, was in helping to identify this phenotype because that helped to also do the retrospective analysis, to be able to look back at NHANES, just a triad in general, maybe not as extreme as lean mass hyperresponders. How often do we find observationally that a population with high HDL, low triglycerides, but also high LDL have an association with cardiovascular disease, uh, all-cause mortality, or even getting down into things like cancer and infection and so forth. It's really quite fascinating. But the, the challenging part is that we it's not just that we're identifying this phenotype and we're studying it. There is a claim that's being made by the Lipid Energy Model paper, which Nick uh, has helped us put together, and, and we have a list of five different ways in which you can test it. 
And one of them is that we think this really is physiological. It's not just that it's random chance. It's not that it's just unusual genetics. We think most people who you get that like say are Nick, we could design a diet, put people like Nick on it who've never been classified as a lean mass hyperresponder. And I think that we'd find the vast majority of them turned into lean mass hyperresponders. And if that's true, it's physiological. Can I add one more really important point that might not come up in a question, but I really want to hammer it home, which has to do with classifications. And um, sometimes the lean, or, or there is a tendency, maybe prior to, but even still, identifying lean mass hyperresponders as a unique phenotype to lump them in with another class of patients, familial hypercholesterolemia. And you even see a tendency towards this with the changing criteria for what is familial hypercholesterolemia. Now with definitions relying more on just the phenotype, so a phenotypic definition, i.e. if your LDL is above 190, you can be classed with familial hypercholesterolemia. Now, that is a problem in my perspective, because what it does is it clusters people that are lean mass hyperresponders to people with a genetic etiology, a congenital disorder, a broken lipid metabolism from birth. And, you know, that driver is very different than a metabolic driver. And the consequences, therefore, could also be very different. So you have very different etiologies. You could have different consequences. You don't necessarily have different consequences, but you do need to separate them to start to, ha to, start to have the conversation. So, you know, I think it's important to like, you know, do the T-chart, compare these two things and say, are they the same? So you have FH, you have a mutation or a set of mutations that are altering lipid physiology from birth. It's congenital. It might be a phenotypic diagnosis, but it's a genotypic disorder. It's driven by your genotype. You have it for life. It doesn't, you know, get really influenced by carbohydrate restriction or environmental factors like the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype. And you don't have necessarily the HDL and the triglycerides that are associated with it. Whereas the lean mass hyperresponder, these are patients with presumably normal lipid metabolisms that respond to carbohydrate restriction in a reversible manner. Um, and it is associated with this triad and other features that we see, like the inverse association between LDL and BMI. So I just want to highlight that, like, you could see how, if one isn't looking for LMHR and trying to distinguish them, those patients could get brushed into the FH category. And then you have an issue of signal to noise, right? Where you have phenotypes being mixed together and you might not actually see the signal that is lean mass hyperresponders and be able to distinguish it, what makes it special and what we can learn from it. So step one is identifying this as a unique phenotype, which I think we've now effectively done. Have a model to explain it and then pursue that model mechanistic questions, and then the risk questions as well. But I think it's really mm -hmm. important to, you know, distinguish why the triad is really valuable in classifying this group. Hopefully that's all clear. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions I, I have is, uh, so an LMHR person who's really high on the spectrum and they have a family history of ASCVD, like what, what do you do in that context? So I mean, I'm kind of, I get, I've gotten that question several times uh, over the last month or so. So someone's cholesterol is off the charts. Everything looks absolutely perfect, uh, but they have a concern because of the family history of it. And they're not, you know, they're, they don't have genetic predisposition for hypercholesterolemia. So, so would you, do you have those people in your trial, actually? We actually do. We have uh, about 31 of the 100 have reported a family history of heart disease, um, which surprised me. Like, I didn't actually realize we'd have that many folks that would actually be in there. The, um, you know, Dr. Budoff, I'm going to steal his answer because I myself am always uncomfortable if somebody's asking me, especially if it comes down to individual health advice, I, I pass the ball off and say, you know, work with your doctor, do do the best you can. But Dr. Budoff, at the end of his presentation of our match analysis, uh, which we might get a chance to chat about, um, somebody had brought forward, another fellow doctor had asked in the Q&A, had said, you know, we get some of these folks who have gone on a ketogenic diet and they have a profile like this one, and uh, we're very uncomfortable with it. So, are you suggesting we just ignore the high LDL? And his answer was that what you can do is you can get a scan. Um, because of course, what, what they found with both CCTA and CAC is that even in those folks who do actually have uh, genetically confirmed familial hypercholesterolemia, 
if they have like, for example, a zero CAC, especially, you know, later in life, uh, it's, it's very low likelihood that they're at as high a risk. But of course, conversely, if they do have present disease, then that's, you know, something you want to be uh, considering as well. So that's not my answer. That's me kind of carrying over his answer. But he and Karam Nasir, who's also the senior author for the um, for the upcoming match analysis, are on lots of papers where they're looking at exactly this. And that is something that I think is just a fair statement overall, is if you're concerned about your you know, heart disease risk, whatever the circumstances are, then I don't think anything really beats actual detection of the disease. And this is why I love that we're using CCTAs in our study, because now the radiation dosage is so low that if you really want to go for the gold standard, you can get it for like two millisieverts of radiation dosage, which is, you know, like five mm -hmm. mammograms or something along those lines, um, depending on if you're already low risk. And just find out, find out for yourself if the disease is already present, and then that will probably inform your decision a lot more. Quick question. So, according to the lean mass, or according to the lipid energy model, uh, does reducing LDL pharmacologically, say from you know four hundred to no three hundred to one fifty, is that going to impair lipid transport? Is that going to inhibit fat oxidation? Uh, it's another question I got, and I'm not sure you've kind of addressed that issue, like LDL in your mind is serving an important purpose. And if, if all the health biomarkers are good and you cut it in half pharmacologically, is that then going to impair lipid transport and fat oxidation? Does the model suggest I, that? I, I can answer that, but I just want to rewind a little bit so that topics don't bleed into each other and really separate the idea of mechanism and risk. Because those are two very separate conversations. The lipid energy model, you know, we talk about the mechanism driving it. We don't necessarily talk about risk. And the prior question you asked also, you know, what would we do? Well, actually, none of us here are clinicians, but certainly, you know, not the clinician for the person listening to this video. So it's really important to emphasize that asking questions about what causes the lean mass hyperresponder phenotype, and even asking the question, are they, are LMHR participants at increased risk, as we're doing in the, the LMHR CCTA study, asking the question, you know, that is at the boundaries of the unknown is not the same as saying this is safe or making any sort of recommendation. All we're doing is asking questions. We're not managing, you know, as clinicians, as cardiologists, any LMHR patients. So to separate those things. Um, and now, as for your question with respect to driving down pharmacologically LDL and how that could impact um, energy trafficking in lean mass hyperresponders, I have a thought, but I'll pass it off to Dave if you want to have a first whack at it, Dave. I, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because um, you, Nick, have some firsthand experience with this more than I do, which is actually kind of cool. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll say first. It's an open hypothesis. I would think, you know, if we were like, ask the question, what would we need to do to explore that possibility? One pretty cool um, experiment I'd like to do is actually a randomized crossover, looking at different LDL lowering techniques in lean mass hyperresponders. But if you had a control group and it was blinded and you give participants who are LMHR and non-LMHR participants, say, you know, a statin, if there is an impact on fuel trafficking, we should be able to detect that. We could get things like, you know, um, respiratory quotients. We could monitor symptomology, look at, you know, creatine kinase, lactate levels, this, that, and the other. There are a lot of ways we could monitor it. I could see it splitting either way, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, I, I could see a scenario where, yeah, if you're reducing flux, then you do might, you might have issues with, you know, say athletic performance side effects like myalgias. That said, I did say reducing flux. Taking a medication that reduces LDL doesn't necessarily reduce flux because when you take, say, you know, all of these medications that converge, the mechanism is increased LDL receptor expression. So, you know, your body could still ramp up VLDL export and turnover, and you're just having the LDL particles pulled out of your blood more quickly. So it's not necessarily that you, you know, just because you have a drop in levels, there's enough drop in flux to cause um, a, you know, a deficiency in performance. So, you know, my, my hypothesis is that 
in a subset, at least, we probably would see higher rates of, of negative effects and changes in uh, fuel trafficking dynamics, possibly athletic performance, than in the average population. Um, but, you know, as I'm explaining it here, you could see how it could cut either way. So it's a good question that we don't have an answer for. My, my hypothesis is it would take a lot. Like taking something from 400 to 150 with a cholesterol lowering medication that ultimately had to do with receptor activity. So in other words, it has less to do with what's inbound and more to do with what's outbound, right? As less, less the faucet, more the drain, if the drain is getting larger, right? So that more is getting taken out, but there's still 150 that's detected. It doesn't, it doesn't take much widening of the drain to bring it from 400 to 150. And I think that actually doesn't change the bioavailability that much if you're getting into, if we're going to get into like physics of stuff, I think you really do have to get it way down before you can actually create some kind of a systemic rate limitation. That's my hypothesis. Okay. Uh, so then there's not, in the, in the context of the lean mass hyperresponder, there's not necessarily a negative functional outcome to if all the biomarkers are great and they want to, uh, you know, proactively decrease the single biomarker from 400 to 100, even there's not going to, you would hypothesize there's not going to be a functional consequence, like a decreased VO2 max or decrease in athletic performance. I think that would I be, was saying that could that be a simple study, like three week study. I think it, it's a study that we need to do. I don't even know if I'm into our final wish list on the lipid energy model paper. I think it's one we need to do. And just to clarify, we've never discouraged anybody from taking medications very clearly. In fact, you can oh, yeah. look in our Journal of Clinical Lipidology editorial where we say, look, there are a lot of unknowns here. We don't know that these patients are at increased risk. But in the absence of this knowledge, it's also appropriate to be clinically conservative on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. So that's perfectly you know, a reasonable choice. And it's very possible there isn't a negative functional effect. But then it's also very possible, or let's just say possible, because it's an open question that the patients aren't at increased risk. Is there any possible downside to taking medications that aren't necessary is another, again, just mm -hmm. open question. So um, yeah. it's, 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 it's just the question. That's the thing. It's like all these things are giant question marks. And we just want more data so people can make informed decisions based on what the data show. Um, I'll say I've had a statin recently. We can talk about this as part of an experiment. For me, I did have my outs, um, and it wasn't super pleasant. I finished the trial, but like, you know, that's just a little thing. Did it impact my performance athletically? Not really. I could go work out. You know, I wasn't having like statin brain or whatever. I was able to get through life, mm -hmm. but I also don't know if I was benefiting any all benefiting at all. So it's not fun to sign up for a drug for life that could have, you know, negative effects on quality of life, possibly downstream consequences. If you don't know what the, the pros versus the cons are, and that's where we are a big yeah. question mark. Have you tried Zedia? So I just actually took my first dose of Zedia yesterday. So I'm doing a little 30 day experiment on my yeah. uh, cholesterol and B. Uh, actually experienced some side effects uh, this morning from it. So I could tell like what were your side effects? absorption. Uh, I had some pain underneath my ribs, like just kind of feeling a fullness. And then I could just tell because I had like maybe six to eight eggs yesterday and some steak and everything that I did not absorb fat. I could tell there was, you know, lipids after the bowel movement, not to be too prescriptive, like, and I don't, that's not normal for me. And I, uh, and I know that's the main side effect. They say it's only like four to 6%, but then I read some things say like 20 to 40% of people. Yeah. And if you're on a high fat meal, this is what Zeddy is going to do. So, uh, so I'm, I'm super interested in seeing how this moves yeah. the needle. Yeah. I, I suspect I'm a hyper absorber, but I don't know. I think this little trial I'm doing will. So, yeah, I actually have tried it. I had similar effects mm -hmm. in about a week. I didn't stay on it. Um, I will say, ideally, I mentioned I want to do a crossover. I want to do a crossover with carb reintroduction versus statin versus Zetia. My prediction is Zetia is going to perform relatively better as compared to other patient population, lean mass hyperresponders, because what it does is it blocks cholesterol absorption from the gut. Now, it's really important to emphasize that's not just dietary cholesterol. You mentioned you had a lot of eggs, but that mm -hmm. includes cholesterol that's 
put in, you know, via your, your bile duct and gallbladder, which is about 80% of it. So yeah. in lean mass hyperresponders, you know, it's not that they're necessarily eating more cholesterol, but because there's more lipid flux, you're going to have more enterohepatic circulation, which means you have more cholesterol kind of fluxing through your entire system. So it's blocking that, that I think is going to have the biggest impact. Um, and then kind of force the biggest adaptation and increased LDL receptor expression in the liver. So I, I speculate that Zetia might actually outperform statins in lean mm -hmm. mass hyperresponders. I don't know if that's the case, but yeah. it, we, we have, we, we have a little bit of anecdotal be. data from the groups on that, uh, that it seems to be better tolerated. Um, again, these, this is just anecdotal of what's being talked about out there. Uh, but it's interesting, Bill Cromwell, um, who is, of course, on uh, Nick's paper that's going to be upcoming here shortly, uh, he was the first to bring to my attention that as it happens, a number of people who go on cholesterol-lowering medication like statins will actually become hyperabsorbers after the fact, suggesting that the body's like, you know, potentially reaching for and trying to uh, acquire more. But to Nick's point, yeah, our, our body's actually very greedy. With its cholesterol and a lot of a lot that's getting recirculated, um, you know, with the bile salts and so forth, it's it's coming back through the enterocytes at a, at a surprisingly efficient rate. So it again, it doesn't take much. Kind of with what we were talking about before, it doesn't take much uh, um, inhibition of that in order to change the dynamic a lot to where all of a sudden now there's going to be more demand on the liver to pull more out of circulation to then use more for um, for the bile. So. That's not too surprising. Not to be too graphic, but like I've gotten some questions uh, and I kind of can relate to this most recently is that I think I am a hyper absorber of fat and cholesterol. And I noticed after the Zedia sort of my, my poop was floating and, and other people have commented about this, uh, that they can eat a ton of fat and they don't gain weight. And I, I curiously asked questions or, or people have asked me about this and I'm just, I'm thinking that, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's something to study there from people who have maybe fat malabsorption that could tolerate a lot of fat in the diet and that don't gain weight. And and I think it's could be, you know, microbiome. It could be uh, the Neiman PIK1 receptor, which I think the NPC1L1 receptor, right? That's in the gut. So that plays a big role, cholesterol, but it's also in the liver. It's in the pancreas. And it's in other places too, right? So do we know how it's, how Zetia is functioning in the liver relative to, I always think about it in the gut, but, uh, but I know it's, it's also in the liver too. I, I I've don't only know known about its impact with the, with the gut. I didn't actually know it, if it had an impact with the liver. I'll also say I'm definitely a hard gainer with fat, but I've never had steatorrhea. I don't know. That that I never did either ever until I took Zetia. But I'm <laughs> just saying, it's like, yeah, well, what will be interesting if we have a crossover trial and the arms were long enough, if people on the Zeti arm who are LMHR lost weight, it would be interesting. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Some competition with Mozempic there. Anyway, but I don't know. For Not that lean mass hyperspawners need to lose weight. They typically are I know. already yeah. pretty lean. So, yeah. So women, uh, my co-host, uh, Victoria, is a female <laughs> lean mass hyperresponder category. And you guys uh, published a paper uh, looking at elevated LDL in women that the, the, the women remind me, maybe you could talk a little bit about that paper and what uh, hormonal observations that you saw uh, with these women that had elevated LDL. Sure. So this was an interventional trial. It was conducted by Dr. Isabella Cooper. Um, and she was doing a trial where she suppressed ketosis in women who were just doing a ketogenic diet by their lifestyle choice. So I think the mean was 3.9 years they'd been keto, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then there was, um, three phases. The first where they maintained ketosis for 21 days. Um, nutritional ketosis defined as all participants had ketone levels circulating of greater than 0.5. Uh, and then they suppress ketosis with 21 for 21 days using the standard UK um, healthy eating guidelines or SUC for um, standard UK mm -hmm. guidelines, also SK for suppression of ketosis, where they suppress their ketone levels below um, uh, 0.2 millimoles, eating around 200-ish grams of carbs per day. The re recommendations were like 55% cake health and carbs 
along with most eating guidelines. And, um, and then they went back on the ketogenic diet and, you know, and, and that was the intervention. They were looking at a lot more than just lipids, but we did a sub project. We were looking at what were the changes in lipids and two things fell out. One was a confirmation of our prior work that there's an inverse association between BMI and LDL change. So the women who were leanest had the highest LDL and the largest drops when they added back carbs. Um, so that was a confirmation of prior work. Now, lipid energy model, emphasis on energy, we presume that things related to energy in the body are going to be predictive. And so another thing we looked at was uh, thyroid hormone because thyroid hormone controls energy metabolism. And we're able to find that free thyroid hormone also predicted changes independently um, of BMI. So if you end up looking at the paper, there's a nice spider plot that shows the power of different predictive models. BMI is the best solo predictor. Thyroid is uh, an independent predictor. And then combined, they provide an even better prediction. So um, yeah, that was the hormonal finding. We don't report on um, sex steroids in that paper. And I'll also note the interpretation is not entirely clear. Um, it was specifically the free thyroid that changed, not the reverse uh, thyroid, not the T4. Actually, it might, have, something might have happened with the T4. The TSH was normal. Um, basal metabolic rate didn't change. So we can go down the rabbit hole of that a little bit, but more than anything, I'd say that there was an association between a um, hormonal mediator of energy metabolism that predicted LDL change in addition to BMI, which is you know consistent with the lipid energy model. Yeah. So insulin suppression of insulin, it, like there's that iodo deiodinase enzyme that T4 to T3, and maybe the suppression of insulin signaling is decreasing or favoring T4 over T3, more active thyroid, but this does not seem to impair fat oxidation or it's almost, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Because people look at, I get a lot of questions about ketogenic diets and thyroid in females, and they seem to be very, very concerned about it. There doesn't seem to be any pathological risk associated with this T3 suppression, right? Not in this context. Um, I mean, it's the explanation for the etiology of the dropped uh, free T3, which is the active hormone. There could be a few things. One could be increased sensitivity in the pathway. It's really important to emphasize, you know, if somebody is, is, is hypothyroid and they have, you know, suppressed metabolism, they're feeling cold. Those are clinical signs. Or if you're hyperthyroid, um, you know, you could have like eyelid retraction, hyperreflexia, you're hot all the time, this, that, and the other, your basal metabolic rates increase. But again, they're clinical signs. Um, and also depending on the cause, your TSH, which is part of the feedback system can be changed. So if you're, you're hypothyroid, your TSH is going to go up. Now, there's something called sicu thyroid. We can talk about that later. But bottom line is the feedback mechanism, the TSH was totally normal in these women, and their basal metabolic rates did not change. So they're not going clinical hypothyroid or anything. Another possibility is that you know thyroid hormone is needed in carbohydrate metabolism. If you remove the need for it because you're eating fewer carbs, then it could just be a supply and demand issue. Um, so, you know, it might be more of an epiphenomenon, a marker, rather than having anything to do with uh, cause of the LMHR phenotype. You know, for that, we'd actually need to do assessments, see if there are, you know, changes that would be consistent with a subclinical hypothyroid. We didn't see any signs of that. And that was, these were very healthy women. So, um, again, the interpretation is difficult, but no there weren't any clear pathological signs, no suppression of metabolism or anything like that. Um, cortisol? And cortisol. We didn't yeah. report on cortisol in this particular paper. Yeah. And I think, I think the data will be made open access. So this was part of a PhD students, a PhD students project or thesis. So normally while we would make all data open on this population, there are more papers coming out with respect to this cohort that are relevant to somebody's thesis. So it'll come out in time but there are reasons we're not reporting on that right now. And that just has to do with that. Her okay. thesis comes first. Okay. Yeah. I'd be interested in like estrogen, testosterone, you know, mm -hmm. um, cortisol. And if yeah. that's uh, correlates with any, any of this. When, when we published the lipid energy model, I mean, we addressed, um, and I believe we've made mentioned at least once or twice on 
hypothyroidism as being part of the cascade. And it's a part that we haven't explored very deeply. This is why it was great to have this study to help fill in more. But it's true. I think it's still part of the larger cascade. We know what's at one starting point, which has to do with the hepatic glycogen stores. And we know that whole body fatty acid turnover is a big part of the lipid energy model. But everything that's a part of that cascade on in the middle is going to take some time to work out. But I definitely think the thyroid's a big component there myself. What is your testosterone? What's that? I was do you what are you I actually have never asked you what your free T3 runs because I run really low on T3. Yeah. And I can tell kind you of, I do not have a suppressed basal metabolic rate. I think I'm, normal, but. I think I'm at the bottom of of the range and potentially below. But as you know, my first first author paper, I I had published all the data. I captured a huge a huge amount of data. And T3 was one of the things that sure enough tracked with insulin levels, for example. Uh, when I was at maintenance level, it was here. But then when I went hypocaloric and it went down, my T3 went down right along with my insulin. And then it went back up right along with the hypercaloric phase. Um, I'm None of this should be very surprising, but in the context, or I should say, should be surprising outside of what kind of diet I had. But in the case of being fat adapted, I think I think we're going to find it's very relevant. And I think it's why there's so much it's interesting because a lot of people on a ketogenic diet are concerned because all of a sudden they're getting diagnosed with hypothyroidism. Um, and I, again, pattern recognition, I think we see this a bit more and people are metabolically healthy than or not. And I think that there's going to be uh, more dots that we can connect with subcutaneous adipose tissue in particular um, in, in that management with thyroid. So we'll see. I think it can bump up and maybe even overshoot when you reintroduce. This happened to me you know, in some blood work I did pre 2006, seven and eight in 2007, my LDL was one about 100. So right now it's about, you know, 240 or something. So it's more than doubled, uh, in that time. And I was eating like moderate, moderate carbs, but, uh, I've also just in thinking about this a little bit more with, uh, lean mass hyperresponders and males that have sent me blood work they are also borderline, if not hypogonadal, and had trending on lower testosterone levels. But these guys are like overachievers in the gym. They're strong, they're fit. And it, I just thinking, you know, maybe they just have high androgen receptor sensitivity or something's going on there, but they're also uh, probably overtraining in my estimation. Uh, and I've wondered if you know, and if you're doing these studies, if you're looking at hormone profiles in particular in females, but also in males, and if you see trends for the males to be a little bit on the hypogonadal end. Uh, I'm going to just kind of say no. Okay. Without much further <laughs> detail. Um, I have actually tracked my testosterone over time and it can fluctuate. Let me just leave it at that without any exogenous input. I'm intentionally speaking vaguely. Um, but even at when my testosterone is either on the lower side of normal or high, high being 1,000, 1,100, um, it doesn't really impact my, my, my phenotype that strongly. I haven't noticed anything. Now there's a lot of noise to go with that signal since I haven't been tracking it fastidiously. But I've seen several profiles Certainly, I think there is a feature of overtraining, relative energy deprivation, and sports type physiology. But um, also, seeing people that are LMHR with higher levels um, of testosterone, in particular, so you know, nine hundred, a thousand, eleven hundred, just naturally, and LMHR phenotype. So I don't know if you've observed anything, Dave. I mean, they. I see what gets reported in groups. I, I suspect testosterone, as with a few other. Uh, hormones, and uh, especially a few other sex hormones, I think that there's there's a lot of context that's still getting worked out. That's not just individual, but you know, if if there's anything that I hope people can take from my earlier hyper obsessive experiments, it's that once you start increasing the frequency of how much you test, you start to figure out that there are a lot of things that can be deter that can be influenced in a short time of uh, short mm -hmm. time span that don't get picked up by a lot of these larger studies that spend all their mm -hmm. money on these incidental like you know once every three months or something along those lines. 
And there are some things I think are more likely to be put in that category than others that may be getting Maybe. influenced in short time spans. And definitely testosterone is one of them, which is why, by the way, I if there is anything I do get a bit vocal about, I wish that they hadn't dropped off um, uh, fasting. It used to be if you got blood work, you need to be fasted like 12 hours, 14 hours, something like that. And I know uh, clinical practice has changed, but I think we're going to find a lot of data is going to get looser and things like hormones, particularly that can apply to metabolism and can apply to your circadian rhythm, things like that. I think our data is going to get a lot worse from that one change and it's going to get harder to um, assess things like this. And so that's, that's why sometimes I put in a little mention like this in interviews where I'm like, I'm actually a little more of an unknownist than I may sound because I think there's so much that we still have to learn. And part of it is just getting to this level of granularity. And that's part of the citizen science foundation kind of overall objective, right? Is to just kind of get into the weeds on these things and get testable hypotheses that you can feasibly answer. Get yeah. An answer to. Yeah. It's funny. I, I, I feel like, I mean, I, I built the citizen science foundation uh, for anybody who's not familiar with it. It's I literally started it. It's a, a public charity, mainly for the purpose of funding this lean mass hyperspotter study that we're doing out of Lundquist. But I will say this, there's been a lot of people who reached out to me who are like, this model seems like it can actually work. The studies can get done based on popular interest to do the study. Like you, You'd think if it was a popular interest, then governments would get behind it, companies would get, but no, it doesn't work that way at all. It's in fact, it's very difficult to get something a lot of people want to know happen without something like this. And so to your to your point, Dom, yeah, I've kind of thought a lot about, you know, as we move these studies forward, how much can we help make this model more accessible to do exactly that for other people, including other questions like this? It's true. I'd love if I'd love if we had a big gajillion dollar lab. I'm sure uh, Nick and I would would have about, I don't know, a hundred different experiments going on at all times. But uh, yes, getting back to the granularity, getting back to the frequency. I mean, here's a good example. Here's something I wish science would just do today. I wish we just had a bunch of people, like a thousand people who we just paid a, a per diem and it was just their job to get tracked constantly, right? But like a healthy population, we just don't track healthy populations in general, unless there's some business interest or business case that's associated with it. And then it'll be proprietary data. But I wish it was something like in Haines, just a lot more frequent, where there was just a lot more frequent testing, where it was like part of their job to get blood work more often. If there was like new machines coming online that got you know new FDA approval, and you only are looking at them with sick populations, well, then we should have some of these folks go through it. And then PhD teams and so forth could connect with it. Anyway, I kind of want a soapbox there, but this is kind of an issue that I feel like we have with science. And I feel like what we've been doing lately has helped to shine a light on that a bit more, which I appreciate. Do you love learning about metabolic health? So do we. It's why we created the Metabolic Initiative, an online educational platform providing evidence-based education on metabolic health and therapies for healthcare professionals and the general public. By joining the Metabolic Initiative, you'll gain access to hundreds of expert lectures, interviews, panel discussions, and even private episodes of the Metabolic Link. CMEs are available. Go to metabolicinitiative.com to get started. And as always, thank you for listening to the Metabolic Link. Prevention, there's no no research in prevention, and that's kind of, in a way, that's kind of what you're looking at. You're not really treating, I guess, hyperlipidemia is, you know, a disease, I guess, we think, because we have a statin to knock it down, right? So um, we have a pharmacological intervention for that. Um, but where do you see, maybe give like the, the 5, 10, and 20-year vision of what you plan to do through Citizen Science Foundation and your overarching objectives in and ongoing, you know, past, current and, and future research. We're gonna we're gonna try to like hire amazing people like Nick Norwitz if we can. I mean, I don't know. It's a, the competition's gonna be tough to try to get him on board, but yes. He's a bit <laughs> of a slacker. I don't know about it. 
No, but it, 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 it does asleep. start. It does start yeah. with people who just genuinely they're they're just interested in helping to get to the answers. The truth seeking, that's what's exciting about it, Dom. Like I yeah. I I miss engineering, I, I miss writing code uh a lot. Mm. But I will say it's very addictive to feel like you're on the trail of truth in some fashion to just try to figure out what's going on, especially if you might be getting under the hood of some real physiology. Um, but that's that's what I hope it could be. I hope as an entity, it could not just be looking for um, you know, new ways of chasing down the same things. I'm hoping we're well past the lipid energy model, you know, in five years, and we've got a new expanse of a lot of new things. Um, that we could be working on. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, in 10 years, I hope it's giant. Oh, it's a giant lab that's constantly connecting formal and non-formal citizen scientists on really great and interesting questions that are not getting answered elsewhere. And, and you have a vision to collaborate with like mainstream academia and to partner with academia to, for example, get NIH R01 grants funded and to get government support behind this. I know that's going to take some time, but I see that as sort of like a bigger grand vision that could really start to move the needle on some things. What do you think my purpose is? Well, I, I, I imagine you're, you're the guy who I can eventually say, now run this for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, like I said earlier, this was really a colliding of worlds for me because that is my academic trajectory. You know, I went to, you know, good college, good grad school, but like very normal down the pipeline, Harvard Medical School. This is where I was heading. The fact that I got connected with Dave in citizen science was a, uh, a, a beautiful surprise. Now, you ask about 5, 10, 20-year goals. I would be lying if I said I had a refined image of what that was for me just because I know how rapidly things are changing for me now, where I was five years ago, I could not imagine where I will, you know, where I am now. So I, I don't know what that looks like. What I can tell you is that, you know, for me personally, something I've always loved and I found this to be a thread throughout my life is just, you know, being curious and spreading that curiosity. And we live in a really special time now in the 2020s where scientists can communicate with lay audiences there are growing platforms for that and there are growing ways in which we can engage everybody in the scientific process and in curiosity and also leverage that brain power brain powers that don't you know we're all natural scientists you don't need degrees to the betterment of science that's that's what I wanted to devote my life to doing. I don't know exactly what it'll look like, but it's so incredibly exciting to now see avenues opening up for the ability to spread, you know, our nerd enthusiasm for these topics with other people and then have them in kind reciprocate and provide us with great feedback and great ideas. So that's kind of what I see citizen science as. And I do think, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. But going into later 2020s, 2030s, 2040s, what we're going to see is a real melding of Jade Tower academia and ideas coming from people like Dave, who are just, he, he didn't train necessarily to do this, but he made an incredible observation and got other people excited about it. And, and that's something that really should transcend, you know, degrees and in institutions. Um, yeah, there's a pragmatic element. And yeah, we're going to get, you know, credentialed or highly credentialed physicians and scientists on this we already are and we're going to get the grants and stuff it's a little bit funny because right now it's just a practical limitation of where we are in our respective careers for me it's like i i know where i'm going right now i don't have those resources but i intend to so if if, if he has no one else to lean on dave will be able to lean on me for leveraging those resources but i do think that the network is growing really quickly you would have you, you, it's hard to imagine just how many, let's say, atheists in the clergy there are with respect to academics that are really interested in this topic. I can tell you, I think it's fine to say, some of them have even come out, there are multiple attending physicians. I've had multiple attending physicians who have come to me and say, you know, Nick, I'm really interested in this. And by the way, I'm also a lean mass hyper responder. Like it's everywhere. And I think it's just going to, you know, have to hit, it's, it's getting close, but it's hitting this inflection point where it's just going to be an explosion 
And this is going to be something that, you know, a, a, a giant swath of medicine is interested in studying just because it's so freaking cool. So anyway, yeah. sorry, that was my, my monologue. Well, that, that's great. I mean, there's so many upper level academics that don't really have an interface with the general public uh, like you guys do. And, um, you know, maybe they get a press release if a big science paper comes out or something by the university, but they don't they don't have the passion. It's like they do science for science. I mean, you guys are doing science not only for science, but to make a huge impact on public health and this emerging problem that kind of emerged out of a low carb community, ketogenic diet community, which I'm kind of ingrained on. And uh, I'm really inspired by, by what you guys are doing. And not only like the research, but uh, to a large extent, the public outreach that you guys are doing, Nick, through your your YouTube channel, and then Dave through citizen science and just spearheading that. And I often have like, you know, PhD students especially come and they don't really know where they want to go. I just say, follow, you know, your passion. If you do what you love and what you're passionate about, you're going to be successful. And Nick, I mean, like the world is like an oyster for you. You can just go in so many different directions with your background, but I'm super inspired that you're so passionate about this area of research and just know you're just going to be, you know, spearhead a, a major, major uh, research on a major problem that we have in, you know, the nutritional intervention that is that we know is so powerful for so many different things. I mean, when I first started this research, it was like pediatric epilepsy. And then in 2008, I was, was excited because Eric Kossoff published in adults, it works in adults. And now it's just exploded, you know, into low carb conferences and I'm excited to hear what you guys will be talking about at the Metabolic Health Summit too. It'd be, uh, so I'm just, you guys, it must be hard to pick what you want to talk about there, but. <laughs> we but we definitely have short things. lists, both of us, okay. and we'll, we'll be okay. hitting the top ones and the short lists. <laughs> well, you guys inspire me. Thank you for all your work, passion, and attention to this. I can't wait to see you guys soon. Nick, I don't think we've ever met in person. I feel like we've have, but no, no. <laughs> so I've been under a rock. Person. I have never been to a yeah. low carb yeah. metabolic health conference ever, just because I haven't oh, been wow. able to get it away. I, yeah, yeah. I wasn't allowed to leave last year, basically. <laughs> so this year I am emerging out of my, my shell in person. So yes. Yeah, I'm excited. It's gonna be great. Thank you again, both of you, and look forward to seeing you soon.